0: Welcome to Flipping Awesome Podcast. Every week, we choose a theme and share some of our experiences, as well as a real world story of a real estate investor based on that theme. This week's theme is Building a Beautiful Neighborhood. My name is Marshall Saunders, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Heather Foss.
1: Hey, Marshall. That's right. I'm Heather Foss. I'm a licensed real estate agent in the state of Minnesota with the brokerage Remax Results.
0: Whether it's rehabbing or flipping homes, rentals, vacation rentals, duplexes, triplexes, big, huge, multi-unit complexes, whatever it is, by bringing you the story of real people who have made real investments in all sorts of real estate, we want to make you better informed and hopefully a bit entertained. Be sure to check out our webpage, flippingawesomepodcast.com.
1: Today's episode is called Building Beautiful Neighborhoods. That is a title based on this idea, whether right or wrong, that rehabbing homes and investing in rentals can really help make a neighborhood more livable. Marshall, what do you think about this?
0: I think that rehabbing and investing in uh, real estate can really help a neighborhood. Uh, it, you're, you're oftentimes going in and concentrating on that home in a neighborhood or that uh, rental unit in a neighborhood that needs a lot of work that needs uh, help kind of revitalizing itself, whether exterior or interior, and bringing it up to the neighborhood standards. That's when things work really well. The downside, of course, is this dreaded word called gentrification. And gentrification can be really frustrating to deal with and fight the perception of sometimes. Uh, I've seen it work positive and negative. I've gone into neighborhoods where literally The neighborhood leaders fight really good, positive, affordable housing because they are so afraid of gentrification. Uh, Gentrification is where the neighborhood improves to the point where the residents can't afford to live there anymore. They can't afford to buy into the neighborhood. Um, All the prices go up of real estate, so thus taxes go up, their property values go up, and is great if they're a seller but if they want to stay there and live or uh, people of similar means want to move into that neighborhood it makes that neighborhood really out of reach what also happens is a more affluent populace moves in some of the local stores become more niche stores coffee shops um, selling high-end toys uh, selling that type of stuff and some of the basics go away for area residences that aren't of that much of a means. So uh, grocery stores go away. We've seen it in a number of different uh, uh, cities around the country. Sometimes people are priced out of a neighborhood, but also the area amenities become out of reach as well. Mm-hmm. And so they become kind of uh, visitors in their own neighborhood that they've lived in for years. So that is something that uh, kind of affects what goes on with investment real estate.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. It It has like immediate effects. So like the houses, the way improving a house affects the other houses immediately around it. And then over time. So I know in some situations we see the neighbors of a house that's um, below average and it's going to get rehab, the neighbors find themselves emotionally attached to this house. They've been watching it. They've been uh, shoveling the sidewalk. You know, they they feel like they have a little bit of ownership in this. And then a third party comes in and wants to profit off of this. They, they kind of like, you know, uh, hold a grudge against mm-hmm. that. Um, and then eventually, hopefully, the neighbors become a little bit more appreciative of the the amount of money and time being invested in this house kind of raising it up to the the level of standards of that, that immediate neighborhood. Um, but then again, they go through another emotional roller coaster when all of a sudden the average price point is is increasing. Therefore, their taxes are increasing. You know whether they're selling or not, they're feeling the effects of an improving neighborhood. You know we've seen that in a couple a couple examples in South Minneapolis where investors will buy on what we call like a cusp neighborhood, and there these are blocks that are just like a hair outside of a dominant neighborhood. Will be improving your a house on on that block, and the neighbors will kind of you know give you dirty looks. You know, your first couple of weeks out there, you're making all this noise. They've been taking care of this property and things like that, and so uh,
0: yeah. And, and you're seen as an outsider coming in to profit off of somebody else's neighborhood.
1: Uh, totally, a lot of those uh, properties take a long time to get to the point where they are in mm-hmm. a lot of time in disrepair. Um, maybe it was an older person's home and, you know, the neighbors were taking care of the person also in that house. And then this third party comes in, strangers to the block, and, and it's going to take hold and make make changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a controversial thing. And it goes through like roller coasters of like – this is a good thing. This is a bad thing. This right. is a good thing.
0: Right. Improving a neighborhood versus gentrifying a neighborhood. I had a situation once where we were doing a rehab and the neighbor uh came over and said you're making us all look bad. And <laughs> and I I kind of laughed uh, initially, but they were totally serious. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that thing where when you redo your kitchen or your bathroom, and it's nice and new. And suddenly you realize the rest of your house is really <laughs> old and kind right. of needs a facelift too. And uh, that's what happens in uh, sometimes when you go into a neighborhood that even is not in a tough position. has been, you know, moderately taken care of and people have kept up with things. Mm-hmm. But you come in and you put on the new siding, you know, the new hardy board siding or whatever, you know, the LP smart side, yeah. whatever is kind of more most fashionable at the time. You redo the lawn in kind of a new way and uh, and the interior, and you're just really keeping up to what buyers are looking for right now because you want to make that most sellable. But then suddenly everyone else who hasn't redone their house since the 80s or the 90s their house looks really old and really dated much more so than it did before you came into the neighborhood and did this with this house. Right. Sometimes they get a little angry at you uh, for coming in and kind of changing the status quo. And they're kind of on the downside of that status quo. Um, That makes them a little bit frustrated. These are all things to keep in mind when you're going in and rehabbing a home. It's not just a matter of buying the home putting in all this time and effort and flipping it and doing all these nice new things and everyone loves it. There is a sometimes neighborhood backlash to when you're even trying to, in your mind, better things, fix things up. Sometimes that is a little bit of a grudge here and there. But sometimes it's very uh, active and the community can really actually rally against you, even though you're doing something in your mind that is very nice and really fixing things up. It can sometimes be a very visceral backlash and sometimes a legal backlash. People will try to stop you, especially on larger projects.
1: Totally. I remember one of the pieces of advice I got early on was from uh, Mike Jacka. And he said, start with the outside of your house, uh, of your rehab. Start fixing the landscaping and the outside. That'll give the neighbors an opportunity to come over and meet you and see what you're doing. You're also going to stimulate, you know, their thought process and like, well, maybe I should be improving my house too. And and then move inside. That way, hopefully by the time you get inside, you do have their support. They see what you're doing. They know who you are. And and hopefully they're watching your project while um while you're gone too.
0: Yeah. Later in our show, we're going to be interviewing Joe Mueller. And that's something that he does. Uh, When he goes in and buys uh, usually single family homes in suburban areas, he'll go in and he'll enlist the neighborhood right away. He'll meet people. He's very likable and Uh, kind of approachable. And he goes in and talks to the neighbors and gets their input and really makes it kind of a, a neighborhood project, which is really a great thing. Because a lot of times when you're redoing a home, sometimes you need to get conditional use permits or variances from the city. And the first thing they look toward is, is there any problem with the community? And sometimes the neighborhood has to be notified of those variances. And if you haven't made friends with those folks and they don't know what you're doing and they're not positive on it they can really cause you problem with the local uh, authorities in that regard
1: That sounds interesting like the way you kind of step out of like your systems to get resources immediately from the the neighborhood you know getting new numbers new contractors new prices and going that extra mile to get the neighborhood behind you sounds really interesting The first thing that anyone involved in real estate investing should understand is that you need a good team around you. Real estate lawyers, lenders, inspectors... Trades, people of all sorts, but first and foremost, your real estate agent. Marshall and I have an elaborate real estate network at our fingertips of agents who put their customers first and truly know the best plan to get started in real estate investment in your area. If you'd like us to match you up with a great agent in your area, simply go to our website at FlippingAwesomePodcast.com and click on the experts link at the top of the page. Fill out the form and hit submit. We'll never sell your information We will not spam you. We only want to use the information to connect you with the best possible real estate agent in your area. It's a great place to start.
0: Heather, like I mentioned earlier, today's interview is with Joe Mueller, who came into our studios a few weeks ago. Joe is a licensed agent with Remax Results in Minnesota, and he is the team leader and founder of the Move Group real estate team. Joe is not only a real estate agent, but also a very successful rehabber. He not only rehabs for resale, but he also rehabs and rents. He is incredibly well-versed on all things rehabbing and construction. He's really fascinating to talk to. The reason I wanted to feature his interview on this episode is that Joe has such a strong commitment to getting the neighborhoods that he works in on board with his projects. By the time Joe is done working on a rehab, he knows almost all of the neighbors and he consistently seeks their input and cooperation on projects. So I thought his perspective would be perfect for today's episode. Joe Mueller, you are a real estate agent and a rehabber. Yes, sir. Right? Yeah. Uh, what got you into rehabbing? What was the the thing that piqued your interest about that?
2: Well, I got into real estate, helping people buy and sell first. And then watching others nab up good deals and renovate and flip was, I mean, it was just right in front of me. Sure. And. So as quickly as I got into real estate sales, I wanted to, I just knew I wanted to do it. But when I got into real estate, I had, you know, $20,000 in debt was driving a $500 truck. Sure. And I, I just didn't have the money or the funding. I think I had the know-how because I had always as a kid been entrepreneurial, sure. buying and turning around and selling stuff. In fact, to save up the down payment for my first home, which I bought when I was 21, but I was into Custom car audio and high end audio. I would find really rare amplifiers, speakers, buy them and resell them for a profit.
0: And so you're a real estate agent too. Do you find that helps you in the rehab business, or does that hurt you? Would you suggest it to other people? Well,
2: it does. I've I've been doing it ten years now, and of course you got to know the sandbox you're playing in. We sell on average seventy to eighty homes a year for Mm -hmm. for clients. A lot of them flippers as well. A lot of them um, traditional you know families that are they're that buying and selling real estate we see a lot of transactions we see a lot of homes i think i average it out and i show about 4 to 500 homes a year wow. and so we get to see a lot of what buyers are saying they want in trends we also do a lot with new construction so we're seeing upcoming trends we can install that insert that into our renovations it also puts us in front of clients that may need to sell in an urgent manner you know some reason why they might you know sacrifice the price a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in order to have the outcome they want and you know of course we got to tread lightly so that's the flip side of that coin we we are in real estate to help people we never want them to be short at a dollar but great example four or five years ago one of the first flips that I was actually involved in she called me because she's like I have a job in Florida that I need to start in three weeks it pays me double what I'm making up here and I gotta go but I'm gonna warn you my house is a mess. I've got projects that are incomplete. I went over so it. so as a traditional kind of listing appointment at her house, right? And I went over to consult an advisor. None of that stuff scares me away. When we met with her, I was sitting in her dining room. It was raining. Her roof was leaking on me. It was dripping <laughs> on my shoulder, and I thought, "Gosh, you know, how do I be- how do I best help her?" She we kind of looked at what the home would be worth if she could finish the projects and did an analysis of every direction she could take from from that day forward to accomplish her work goals, her move. And ultimately, she wanted to sell her home for a price that was attractive enough where I just said, would you mind if I bought it? And that was one of my my first flips that I acquired that way. So does being in real estate help immensely? Sure. Of course, if somebody else had that appointment and just immediately was trying to buy that home for below market, there's some conflict there, right? Sure, sure. So there's a lot of flippers that I've learned from that have coached me that have said, You you might not want your real estate license. I believe if you just conduct yourself
0: ethically, they go hand in hand. Sure. I suppose you had to kind of step back and say, hey, listen, you know, I'm your real estate agent and I'm giving you this vice as your real estate agent who wants the best for you. Would you allow me to step aside and put on my rehabber hat? For a moment and you know would you consider selling to me as the rehabber then it's up to her to make a logical choice correct
2: correct right. it's always watching out for their best interest of course if we're offering on a bank-owned property sure, who right. cares it's about a little, the banks a little right? different, yeah.
0: <laughs> you mentioned bank-owned properties have you seen any lately i mean is it just are they gone now because of the better market or what down a lot when
2: yeah. you know i got started in this business in uh, arguably the bottom right. at the bottom um at that time, dis, uh, distressed properties peaked at about 60% of the market. I don't have a statistic in front of me, but I, I guess they're under 10% now, oh. which a kind of average for even a good normal market is 5 to 10% distressed properties. Right. So we're, we might even be a little lower than that. Um, ironically, I had an offer in on a short sale property that just got approved yesterday after a couple months of negotiation. So oh. that's pretty good. They're out there. I get asked all the time, just even by regular clients that are buying, say, their first home that want to know they're getting the best deal, let's target foreclosures. Let's do this. I, I wouldn't say that foreclosures are the best thing to target if you're looking for a deal either. There's often a lot of uh, hoops you need to jump through. As far as the inspection, you might know less about the property and there's fewer of them. The public kind of has this mentality that they're the better deals. So if there's few of them, people think they're the better deals. hmm They kind of clamber towards them and it's 5,000 fishermen on the pond and five fish. Of course, that's going to equate to a higher price, a la not a good deal. The short sale I'm buying, there will be language on the deed that says, I can't resell it within 30 days. Mm. And that's fine. This is a more intense project. It'll take longer than that. And I can't resell it within 90 days for over 120% of the price I bought it for. And the reason they do that is to protect from like, you're just getting such a good deal that You're going to turn around essentially wholesale it or a quick sale with no improvements. Right. And so I respect that language. And as long as you understand it and know it's there, then you're able to work your plan around those facts. Sure. But could you imagine if you're sitting down at the closing table and learn of that or you miss it at closing? You didn't read it. You didn't know. You didn't look at the short sale approval letter with enough detail. You just said, they approved my price. Yay. Right. You could get yourself in quite a bind if you were planning on wholesaling that.
0: So on that particular project, do you think that you'll make – 120? I mean, do you think, do you want to hold on to it for over that 90 days? Cause you might actually make that much.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It'll, Good it'll definitely you. be increased by 20%. And cause that's 20% gross, you know? Mm-hmm. So right. if I just held it, you know, depending on the direction the market goes, if it stays as strong as it's been this spring, I might make 20% on it without lifting a hammer. Right. Um, when we go in and renovate it, we're estimating this one's rehab to cost about 60,000. Mm-hmm. And the and net profit, we're at anticipating about 40,000. And that is if I turn around and sell it and flip it. And it will take us at least 90 days. Remember, I help several dozen families a mm-hmm. year buy and sell real estate. So that's the main thing. When I flip, I do kind of consider it on the side. So I'm sure. going to take the best deals I can find. Sometimes I take my time with them. There's one we did that took 18 months mm. and we knew it would take longer, but in that 18 months, I think we sold 110 homes. So the holding costs were offset, right? Right, right. Part of the reason is, is I do a lot of the work on the properties myself. One, because I enjoy it. Two, because it enables me to do um, flips that maybe others couldn't. A great example is there's a home, this is the one that actually took 18 months, probably would have been eight, nine months anyway. Mm -hmm. It was about double that because of just what I had going on in life. But here's, we had a bid just to solve the water issue around the foundation, just that was forty-two thousand dollars. Wow. We had to it was a four-stall garage. We had to jack it up, put it on stilts, trench down to the footing around the outside, actually knock out the block foundation around the garage because it was built improperly and it had essentially collapsed, and build it up underneath the jacked-up garage, build the block the, the reverse order of how you do it right. if you're building it new. And so we trenched around, did all that. You know, I was running the mini excavator digging around and <laughs> Uh, we were laying the the drain tile pipe in the base. I mean, it's doing all that work. Of course, I mean you got to take it into consideration. The bid was forty-two thousand. A lot of that's their time, but we came in at about eight thousand in materials. Wow. So in a way, if I look at my time, I mean I was paying myself a pretty good hourly rate at that mm-hmm. point. Right. So.
0: Right. and learning a lot. I think that puts a lot of people, it scares a lot of people. How much do I need to know how to do this? How much am I going to do myself? How much can I farm out? And, and then the moment that you're farming out to somebody else, boy, you have to trust them, right? You sure
2: do. Yeah. You don't have to know a thing, actually. I mean, if you're a good buyer and seller, that mm-hmm. gets you really far just in and of that. You don't need to know what a sump pump is. You don't need to know what radon is. I mean, you, just if you're a good buyer and seller you got to know that at minimum when i started flipping and part of this was to bolster my real estate acumen mm-hmm. i got my contractor's license so i'm a licensed builder and licensed contractor the way i looked at it is think of rehabbing and flipping as a vertical you know just any other industry what are the ingredients then well the ingredients are acquiring and then later disposing or selling that property mm-hmm. you know the in between which is the renovation the contracting the money and then, like I said, the selling of it, I'm already a real estate agent. I was working towards getting the money. I had some sources and then working towards being kind of more standalone on that. And the missing element was the contractor. Well, they they make 10 to 15% margin over the work that's going to be done. And, and rightly so. I'm not right. complaining. Right. But when you can step in and be that person that pulls the permits, manages the job, and does that, and just goes directly to the subcontractors, or like I've done in the past, uh, swings some hammers themselves. Sure. You're you're kind of controlling that whole
0: vertical. Just as a kind of a barometer, how much do you make off of something, uh, that house flip?
2: I renovate nowadays mostly then to rent. Sure. And I hold them for, some of them I just have kept. I haven't gotten rid of them. Sure. Um, This one, ironically, I did actually just sell and close on this spring. And I set it up to do a 1031 exchange of the funds I made. I paid, and of course I get a little commission when I buy a house. So I paid 147 for it. The amount of work it needed was somewhere in the 120 range. Okay. My hard cost due to our labor was more in the 60 range. So okay. we wound up having about 210 into the house.
0: Okay.
2: Remember over 16 months. Right. And that includes holding costs. Right. But had it been a hired out job, that number would have easily been 120. We rented it for a year and rents are just through the roof right, right now. Right. That's we like to do that for tax reasons as well as um, just, you know, building net worth through, through owning those rentals. Right. Right. So then we rented it for a year and inventory being so low this spring, I had an agent from my office actually say, we need, we need a house for our buyer. Do you got anything in Farmington? And I'm like, I do. And, you know, we started throwing back numbers. I'm like, gosh, that's, that might work. You know, the market's (laughs) just incredibly strong this year. Um, we ended up putting a deal together. It's a kid I went to high school with was the buyer actually. And, uh, Cool. He loves the home. It's right near a park. It's on a cul de sac. It's suburban paradise. We sold it for three thirty five. Wow. So one forty seven, add sixty. We rented it, and the rent cash flow. It rented for twenty one hundred a month. So we obviously made money there, mm-hmm. uh, and then sold it for three thirty
0: five. Wow. Yeah, that's fantastic. So how do you finance something like that? Did you go in with all cash? So yeah, I feel well. like
2: we're at a pretty mature you know, we're we're pretty mature in how we're doing things now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we look back 10 years, very different, but, you know, talking about now, or that was a couple of years ago that I acquired that one. So talking about then, what I did is I had built up enough cash reserves to be able to offer cash initially and still, you know, I didn't have a, a mound of cash, right? So I was still using my Home Depot card and and ways where I didn't need financing that included anything for the rehab cost. Sure credit cards income as I did it from real estate activities a lot of personal and, labor yeah. yeah oh for sure yeah so that's kind of paying in as you go through your, just your time and sweat but this is this is the model I had been using with the ones I'm rehabbing for rental buy them cash because of the leverage you know you can get a better deal when when out against others cash renovate them then if you're going to hold them as a rental while then what I do is I get an appraisal and get a traditional, it's actually, I forget whether it's Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, but you can have up to 10 investment properties and you can, and it's a fixed 30 year mortgage. So you can, basically what I did in that, remember I had about 200, 210 into it. Mm -hmm. It appraises much higher than that. I can pull out that whole amount and still not feel like I'm over leveraged, right? Because if it appraises for 285 and I pull out 210, it's 60, 65% LTV, not, not a bad position to be in. Right. Um, and then when we look at it as a rental and we calculate cash on cash return, we technically don't have cash in it. We got a lot of labor, but it it actually comes out to be infinite, which is kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. And you can take that and move on to the next one. So what I what I've been doing lately is cash up front, the end use of the property will determine do I put a mortgage on it later and leverage some of it. But I never go above 70% LTV. So my portfolio overall is maybe 50% leveraged. Okay. And That's kind of where I like to be if the market should. I just, I learned so much getting into the industry right Right. after so many people lost their ass, part my French, on, you know, that the downturn, the great recession we had. So I've probably played it more conservative than I've needed to. So I could own a few more rentals or have done a few more flips. Had I leveraged it a little more, I mean, that's the path I chose to take, a little safer, more secure.
0: Any bad stories out there? Any like worst case, like, oh, I lost my shirt on this one Mm -hmm. or that one? I've made less than I've projected on flips.
2: I haven't had a losing flip though. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Well, knock on wood. We have encountered a lot of things that sting. Suck. They draw out timelines. But usually, when you get through them, you realize these are the hiccups that you do. That's the job. You mm-hmm. know, if you're going to be a rehabber, it's not HGTV. Right. It's it. There, there's real world world things that you just don't don't see out there in in the TV land, right? but it's fun. I, I always like to say that if you get the right people around you, um, some good friends of mine, uh, we actually did a flip together. I acquired it and we called it the, I don't know how G rated you try to say, but we, we call it the cat piss house. It had, we learned from the city. We knew it had the cat or you had to wear a mask going into it It is that it would knock you on your, on your your rear end. Lots of potential. The price was right. I bought it and uh, I'm like, oh, this will be a really intense job. I was considering bringing them on to do the flip, but they're flipping. So I just let them basically take the project. Right. And I was just stayed on as a partner. They did such an amazing job. We found out from the city after the fact that there was 50 cats at one point living in this house. Oh my gosh. 50 cats. Yeah. So you got to kind of name the houses, you know, take some joy in it and, and make it fun. Uh, <laughs> if you don't, it can, the stress could get to you sure. for sure. So what's
0: the best way of someone to reach you? Drop
2: me an email, joe at moveMinnesota.com. That's also our website, moveminnesota.com with Minnesota spelled out.
0: Spelled out. Okay. Well, great. Thanks a lot for coming in. Yeah, it's been a joy. Thank you so much, Marshall. For Heather and myself, thank you for listening to Flipping Awesome Podcast. Please visit our website at flippingawesomepodcast.com where you can find additional video content for our show and find our links to our social networking sites. And like we mentioned before, You can simply fill out a form and be connected with the real estate agent in your area that is an investment real estate expert to get you started on or continued on your journey into investment real estate. Flipping Awesome Podcast is produced and recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, who can be found online at mnpodcasting.com. Until next week, we wish you the very best.